hey, this is Kate. Well, I just started to say like, dear God, blah, blah, blah. I just forgot what I was doing. I have a headache. Forget it. You're going to cut all this part out, right? No. Jeez. We've been gone for a while. I've forgotten what's happening. We are um, podcasting. We are podcasters. <laughs> hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. Okay. Clearly, it's been a while. It has been a while, and people have missed us, so that's exciting. We both have received word from people we know and who apparently love us saying, hey, where has the podcast been? Which is really nice because, I mean, we really enjoy doing this, and then also it gets to the point where you're like, is this just a whole ego Does anyone exercise? Listen? Does anyone care about this at all? So, um, But we've been um, taking time off and also dealing with just various urgent situations in church life. And so I went to a family wedding in California, right. which was wonderful. And we now have um, in our African and Korean family, we now have um, uh, a, a Chinese portion of our family, which is really wonderful. And they're great and lovely. And they were just really um, so welcoming and kind. Uh, and so, yeah, it's a great time in California. That's good. I went to the beach. We didn't see any sharks, but we saw lots of dolphins. So that we was so exciting. Of, really? Mm -hmm. huh. So that was really cool. Yes. Yes. So, yeah. So what is astonishing you? What is astonishing me? Well, you know, I love, for many reasons, for many reasons, I love being black. Specifically... I love being African-American for many reasons. And one of those reasons is that you just get something from the culture. And I'm sure others have it as well. But one of the things that black culture, African-American culture gives is this deep, strong, powerful connection with the success of other black people. And the other day, I, actually last week, I was watching, and I've watched it over and over again, watch the 400-meter um, race, mm -hmm. the women's race, uh, the, the championship uh, track and field events are taking place in Budapest. And when Shikari Richardson crossed the line first, I just cried. I, mm. I, cry, I was so, I was so proud of her. And it was, it was as if her, her accomplishment, um, her success was in some way mine. I don't know her. I've never met her. We'll probably never meet her. But the pride, the pride in the best sense of that word, the pride and the inspiration I felt in that moment just reminded me, oh, yeah, this, this is what we do as a people. And for those of you who don't know, um, Shikari Richardson, um, of course, is um, uh, an athlete, a sprinter. Uh, for the past four years, she's really been having a difficult time. She was not allowed to go to the last Olympics uh, because um, of a situation with marijuana, uh, the press just hammered her, especially the conservative yeah. press. Uh, she was known for wearing um, <laughs> it's very kind of flamboyant um, orange and yellow wig, uh, very long nails, long lashes. She's taken all of that off and um, just her, her countenance, her... Um, even her voice sounds different, and um, and I, I forgot how young she is. You know, I, yeah, I was thinking, really you know, she was in her you know mid twenties or whatever. But yeah, she's really young. She's she's like twenty two, twenty three, and you know, if I'd had a camera following me from you know eighteen to mm -hmm. twenty five, the camera would have caught a lot of embarrassing things. And to see this young woman go through this adversity stay disciplined, mature, just keep putting one step in front of the other. 
for me is inspiring as a black man. It's just, it reminds me, yes, there is great power in staying focused, knowing that there will be adversity, just taking the next step of faith. And so, yeah, I'm just, I'm astonished by the inspiration I felt in that moment because in my mind I was just watching another race. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I, I love track and field and, um, by the way, the Jamaicans were the favorite to win. So I was looking for the Jamaicans to mm-hmm. win. And when she won, I was overwhelmed uh, with yeah. emotion. Yeah. I just think her story to me is, um, it is so emblematic, I think, of what happens to black people in general, young black people in general, and young black women in particular, because she, because it was like she won, she was the top contender for the United States track and field. Correct. And then she had um, a drug test that showed some marijuana. Now she was competing and living in a state where marijuana recreational marijuana use was legal correct and there's zero evidence that marijuana is a performance enhancing drug also correct and she was grieving the death of her mother and so i mean i understand that in theory rules are rules although i also understand that rules are rules tends to get expressed very differently to different groups of people. But I think what was such a, what was so hard was, you know, seeing people, um, like refuse to, um, there's so many people I felt like just took a lot of glee in her disqualification and really enjoyed kind of, uh, um, just disparaging her and dismissing her. And a lot of it had to do with, you know, the way that she was performing her femininity, right? Like she was showing up and, and a very unapologetically as a young black woman. And so then when she had this result in her drug tests, people, many of whom were white, really leapt to all of these, um, tired stereotypes about, just, um, you know, disparaging where she came from and making comments about what kind of person she must be and what she must be involved in. And, you know, I don't, it's not that I don't understand that if the, um, rules around what athletes are allowed to have are spelled out. And so if you have a drug test that doesn't come that that doesn't qualify, then there are going to be repercussions of that. But I just think that the way people sort of rejoiced in her misfortune, I thought said very little about her and a lot about where we are as a culture. Because I just recently was reading a very sympathetic profile about another long distance runner who has been um, who's a white woman who has been living out a suspension for several years after she had a drug test that came back with some sort of performance enhancing substance. And she, like she, her story is that she ate some pork products at a food truck. And this is not, I mean, that sounds weird, but it's actually, this can happen. And so she's been living out this suspension and there's, and it's just the, the story was very sympathetic about, you know, this poor woman. And sometimes these tests are too sensitive and they get bad results. And then they have these huge repercussions in people's lives. And I just thought like, wow, it's really interesting how differently the media narrative is for this woman. I mean, there's just a benefit of the doubt for her that, um, Shikari Richardson never enjoyed at all. And so, um, yeah, I just, I, I was glad to see her win. And I do think it's amazing because people really said like, well, that was your one shot and you blew it and you're a pothead. And so you're never going to make it back. And um, so. And that is often the message given to young black people. You make a mistake and your life is over. Right. And I think, you know, the difference in terms of like when Michael Phelps was, you know, pictured at a party smoking a bong with a bong, you don't smoke a bong, right? Like clearly I don't know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Um, 
But, you know, people are just kind of like, oh, the pressure, mental health, blah, blah, blah. And again, it's not, I just want us to notice, especially if you are a white person listening, I just want, I think it's important for us as white people to notice how our biases are played out when we see the same situation with different races of people involved. Like I, most, many white families I know have, when their children are young people, they use recreational drugs and it never occurs to anyone that that will or should have any effect on their future ability or their character or their morality. But um, when a young person of color has anything approaching the same experience, it's just a whole different weight of cultural condemnation that falls down on their heads. And I just, I just think we need to notice it and we need to wonder about it and we don't need to be defensive about it. We just need to notice it and then hold space and get curious about what does this mean and how might my unconscious bias be showing up in other places. So yeah, I'm, but we, we were watching that as well. It was pretty amazing. Yeah. And as a um, African-American man who grew up in Tennessee, I was always told about Wilma Rudolph, Mm -hmm. who, you know, as a child had polio doctors questioned if she would walk. She was determined. Her mother was determined that she would walk and she not only walked, but started to run and, won an Olympic gold medal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, I am astonished by, um, you know, we, we have so many male sports heroes. It's good to have another female hero in sports. Yes. Yes. So what's astonishing you? Um, I, you know, this isn't new. Um, this isn't the first time I've talked about it, I think I talk about it every year, but I think part of the point of practicing a discipline of being astonished is to not, you know, be swept up into the tyranny of the new, like to be able to continually be astonished at things that are good in your life and not take them for granted. Um, So this past Sunday was one of my favorite Sundays of the year and then we did a blessing of the backpacks and um, I'm just always astonished and delighted at just how deeply resonant that opportunity is for our community that um, families come and you know just all of these children and all of the educators and teachers um, and to just be able to call them to the front of the sanctuary and um, pray over them and for them and just name like there's just so much I think good power in naming out loud the the sanctity and blessing and goodness of um, schools in general um, to saying to children that this this new beginning in your life is um, not just significant to you but is um, significant to God and to this whole community and that we're noticing um, and and to say to them, hey, um, nothing that is set before you is too much for you and um, there are going to, you know, this is going to be hard because it's supposed to be hard. And so when something is hard, you, you know, don't, don't despair. Um, your worthiness and your belonging and your belovedness are not at stake. So you're free, you know, to, to face challenges and, and not be overwhelmed by them. And to know that, um, you know, the world might say that what does or doesn't happen in school defines you. And, and we don't say that, but we also are saying, you know, this is good. Like your, your life matters. And, and this is a gift um, to be able to prepare and learn. And, you know, all truth is God's truth. So to say that to children, and then also, my gosh, to say that to educators, because um, I know so many um, educators, excellent educators, who are leaving the profession. And I don't, I don't hold anything but 
like honor and reverence and respect <clears throat> for educators who are making that decision because I think the systems, especially in the systems are toxic <laughs> and, and I don't think that um, loving Jesus means we have to light ourselves on fire for, um, you know, but I do think that our public schools are, are under attack. And, um, so to say to these educators, like you are doing kingdom work and the world doesn't know you and doesn't see you, but, but we see you and we honor you. And, um, this is, this is sacred. And, and also to the teachers, like there are going to be days that you are going to face difficulties and challenges that are going to be overwhelming. And that's not a sign that you're bad. It's supposed to be hard. It will be hard. It's supposed to be hard. And so I just think that moment is so, um, is, is so important and sacred and it astonishes me and, and the, the gift of being able to be a community, um, that, that pauses for that moment is, is so good. And I just don't, I don't take it for granted. I don't want to take it for granted. And also just being able to see the ways that, um, it's grown over the years. Um, so yeah. And I guess if I can climb onto my soapbox for one minute and say two things that never happens. I know. Right. Wait, um, you have a soapbox. Stop. Um, <laughs> I just, I think it's really important. Um, I hear a lot of language. I, I hear certain phrases again and again, particularly in, in, in among white families and, and white women who tend to be the ones who are talking about the decisions they're making for their children's education. And I want to be clear that every parent can and should and must be discerning about where they educate their children. And people absolutely need to, you know, prayerfully make the best and healthiest choice for their children. And I don't think that people need to feel shame or be apologetic about that at all. People should put their children in the best school that they can, that they believe is the best for their kid, given using the resources that they have. Like that, that's, that's good. That's fair. We can all celebrate that. And I'm really tired of hearing people explain the choice that they're making for their child by disparaging the choices that other people are making for their children, right? So if you want to put your kid in a private school or a magnet school or a charter school, that's lovely. I'd love that for you. But I don't love it when you say, I had to put my child in this school because that the other school is trash because those schools are trash because CMS is trash, which CMS is our public school system. And, and I just think if your school is really great and you're really happy with where you have your child, then you shouldn't need to disparage and tear down the school where I have my child. And I'm really tired of hearing people talk about certain schools being trash. You are talking not just about uh, buildings and institutions, but when you say a school is trash or a school is bad, you are, whether you intend to or not, saying that the students and the educators in that school are also bad and valueless. And and it's really destructive to our community and um, to our relationships. So people need to make the choices that they need to make for their children. I put my child in X school and we're really happy with it. That's fantastic. That's very different than saying Y school is so terrible that I put my kid in X school. Um, I, I just... I think that's really um, destructive and, um, you know, it's not far from that to assume then that the families who are in the school that you're disparaging, the, the second line that I hear all the time among families trying to, feeling defensive about their choices is they'll say like, well, education is just really important to our family. Well, our family really values education. And the not subtle, not even implied statement is, oh, well, the families who have their kids in that bad school, they just don't care about education and education is not important to them. And the reality is I, I don't know a single family or a single parent who would say, I don't care about my kid's education. My kid's education is not important to me. Um, what I do know is a great um, 
variant gradation between the resources that families have to devote towards education. And I think that those of us who have more resources um, sometimes feel uncomfortable with the advantages that that is giving our children. And so what we do to deal with our own discomfort is tell ourselves a lie that the families that aren't making those choices, it's not that they can't, it's that they don't care in the way that we care. And so then our advantages become um, moral, you know, to say like, oh, I'm making this choice because I care more about my children and I have better values and better morals than um, the people who are making different choices. And the reality is, um, you know, people make Lots of people don't have the choices that you have. And so they do have their children in schools that you think are terrible. And also a lot of schools have a reputation for being good or a reputation for being bad just based on these kinds of casual conversations that may or may not um, translate into any definitive um, defects or advantages in the future, right? So we talk a lot about test scores in certain schools. What we don't talk about in schools that have great test scores are the numbers of sexual assaults or the numbers of arrests for um, uh, drugs that are not marijuana. Um, so, or the numbers of eating disorders or suicides, suicidality. And so I don't think that because those struggles are in those schools, that means those schools are trash or that those students are bad. I just think different um, communities have different strengths and different weaknesses and different challenges. And so life is long <laughs> and, um, you know, we all, we all want our children to grow up healthy and to be able to flourish and to do meaningful work in the world. We all want that. And so I just wish that people would make it a covenant to say, um, I'm going to talk about what I love about my kid's school, but what I'm not going to do is disparage or um, just destroy the reputations of other schools. And I will just say, it's not, that's not to say that I think we shouldn't talk about problems. I think it's fine to say, you know, we have these problems in these schools. I'm not saying pleasantries, only pleasantries. I'm just saying there's no reason that we need to um, identify schools and say that they're bad and just as a blanket statement. Um, so, yeah, one of our foundational theological convictions about God is that God is good. And what the Bible means by the goodness of God is not only God's moral perfection, but that God's moral perfection is displayed in God's desire to be good right. to God's creation. God is good, and so God does good. The Bible says that the fruit of the spirit is goodness. Right. And so we believe that as followers of Jesus indwelt by the spirit of God, that we too have this goodness, this desire to be good to others. Mm -hmm. Part of our problem when it comes to schools is that we have such a mentality of competition, unhealthy Correct. competition, that we're okay with that school across town failing as long as the school my kid goes to is doing well and uh, my yeah. kid is doing well. Right. We actually think another school doing bad is an advantage for Correct. my child Yes, because we think education is a scarce commodity that we need to compete for. And that is explicitly what the culture says. But what we know as people of God is that we are not in competition with our neighbors and with our siblings. And that truth is not a limited commodity that we need to fight for. And so we, all of our children can receive a good education. And there are even folks in the tech industry, like tech giants who have started these large corporations who are saying college is a waste of time, right? Because they maybe left early and now they have these billion dollar companies saying college is a waste of time. 
Don't believe it, don't believe it, don't believe it, don't believe it. I think that's simply a message to say to some children, mostly poor children, mostly black and brown children, is don't aspire when it comes to education. Don't get much education because we're going to need you to do jobs that no one else wants to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the reality is we, I, I think too often we have bought into the lie that the point of education is to get a high paying job and that we as people of the book, as people who call God the word, you should understand that there's just intrinsic value in learning and knowing and in being known. And, you know, schools and particularly public schools are some of the last, you know, communal endeavors. And so to, to just, again, whether or not it's the right place for your child, I I would have no idea, but to say that these are important, that God is in these places and that, you know, there is a certain, um, there's, there's a, there's an, these school ratings are presented as if they are completely, um, unbiased. And the reality is there's a lot of arbitrariness to these school ratings based on these test scores that they really measure socioeconomic status of students more than aptitude and that you can have educators in communities, in schools, doing amazing life-changing work in terms of, you know, helping kids um, catch up after they've fallen behind or helping kids learn English as a second language or helping connect families to resources towards thriving. And if that child can, can progress three grade levels in a given year, but if they started four grade levels back, it's just going to be rated as failing. And so they just measure, they are designed to measure um, kids starting on grade level and how much they progress over a year. And again, you know, we just went through this global pandemic and none of the standards have been adjusted at all for that. Like we didn't take tests one year, but when we came back the next year, ninth graders were still expected to perform in the way that they would have had the pandemic not happened. And then a whole bunch of kids just get painted as failing and a whole bunch of schools just get the narrative as they're failing and they're bad. And again, we have to wonder who, who is benefiting from that? Like if everyone has gone through a global pandemic for together, then one way you can look at it is everybody's behind. The other way you can look at it is nobody is behind. And so I think it's really important for us as, as followers of Jesus, that when there's a narrative that the culture is presenting us to just like look at it, um, with some curiosity instead of just swallowing it whole and, and to say, like, you know, if we look at, um, like, 1 Corinthians 13 as a measure of how love walks around and does, then then the way we talk about communities that we're not a part of really matters. Um, and, again, I'm for naming problems and telling the truth about them, but I think it's really destructive when we just basically say, well, that's a bad school because those are bad kids and nothing good will ever come from there. (laughs) Nothing. What good can come from Nazareth? And so, you know, it doesn't really matter. And that's why we get the narrative of, okay, we don't have to fully fund Leandro. We don't have to fund our public schools because basically they're a lost cause. So let's not throw good money after bad. And, um, and, And we're not looking at how some of these educational disparities are being preserved intentionally to give certain children an advantage. And we, as people of Jesus, need to understand that what's good for our neighbors is good for us, period. Yeah, and you said a moment ago, all truth is God's truth. And uh, we are people, that is Christian people, who love truth. And I'm just reminded of, you know, ancient um, Alexandria and that famous library. And it was in that environment where there was all kinds of learning um, that Christianity flourished. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I do think that they're, you know, the enemy of our souls is, is good at his job. And so there is a pernicious lie floating around that um, 
that truth is dangerous and that people need to be sheltered from yes. certain truths and um, that we will not be able to love or live together in community if we if we know the whole truth. And so it's better just to skim along the surface and, you know, let's not, I mean, obviously it's explicitly what's happening when we're trying to limit um, the kinds of history that's being taught in our schools or even children's abilities to say, this is what my family looks like. I have two dads or I have two moms or I, you know, to be able to say like, well, that's just, that reality is something that other children need to be protected from is just, um, it's a, it's a really pernicious lie because it then essentially is not really any different than saying that child and that child's family is an intrinsic threat to my child and my child and our family. And that's not true. Yeah. And skimming along the surface of truth reminds me of what I'm thinking about this week. And nice segue. Thank you. Uh, And I say thinking about in air quotes, because I'm not really sure if I'm thinking particularly deeply about this. I I, I think I'm, um, I'm more emoting, um, trying to take it in. I'm disturbed by it uh, more than thinking about it, but it is on my mind. And that is this movement in the country right now to distort, even deny African-American history being taught in schools. You know, in, in Arkansas, they, they, they don't want kids to learn about the Little Rock Nine. Um, I said to the saints at Deride Church on Sunday, you know, I, I've, I've had some people say to me, well-meaning white Christians, say something like, That's, that history is just too difficult to look at, and I'd rather not look at it. It's too painful. Can't we just leave it in the past and go forward? And I'm reminding the saints that at the center of our faith is the Son of God on a cross beaten, nailed to that cross, a crown of thorns pressed on his head. Uh, unjustly arrested. Unjustly, unjustly arrested. This is, this is not a sight of beauty. I mean, the disciples ran away, and yet we know that we believe, we trust that when we turn to that unpleasant sight in faith, that there's power. We know deep down that there is power in looking at and facing hard things. Right. And, I'm, I'm sorry. And aside from that, you have a very, a very narrow understanding of black history. If for you, it's only hard things. Mm-hmm. So l- let me just say that as, as well. But yeah, I am, I'm just thinking about this current movement. Um, and, I, I had a, a brief conversation with my mother about it on Sunday, and uh, both my parents grew up in uh, rural Mississippi. Uh, let's see, we're celebrating, we're remembering the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington. I think they would have been 15, 16 at that time. So uh, they grew up in, in rural Mississippi, and, you know, my mother and I was just talking about education and black history, and she said, you know, even when I was a girl, even when I was a student, um, there was not a lot of black history because our school couldn't afford the books, and, you know, the libraries didn't have the books, um, but still... Um, you, you, you got things. I mean, kids did reports, and it wasn't an official part of the curriculum, but things, some things started to come through. And then in the late 80s, early 90s, there was more of a collective um, push, movement in the black community to learn 
more of our history. I remember uh, at that time I was living in Louisville, uh, going to seminary uh, in the early 90s, and there was this black bookstore called Akubalon Images, um, Jefferson Street. I think it was just off of Jefferson Street. I, I hope it's still in existence. But I would go there, and it was a good 25-minute drive uh, from the seminary. It's clear across town. And just walk through, cruise through um, black history books and people need to understand, and, and, and it's being said a lot uh, lately, that black history, number one, is American history. But I would also add that black history is more than, it includes, but it's more than um, the, trans, the transatlantic slave trade and a Jim Crow. That is definitely part um, as we as we saw a couple of weeks ago with um, the little brawl in Alabama at the river uh, uh, at the the river dock uh, when uh, the one brother took a chair uh, a folding chair and started swinging it. Um, it it has been noted that the folding chair was invented by an African American uh, and there's just so much in our history um, that is being overlooked, denied, or distorted. And that, that's just what's on my mind. Well, and I think like that is so important that there are just, again, things that we have absorbed that are untrue. And then we think like, I will totally, um, I, I am totally comfortable being uncomfortable in admitting that the way I grew up, I assumed that everything was invented by white people, right? And I didn't, that didn't come with the assumption that black people were less capable than white people, but it did come with the assumption that like, well, of course everything was invented by white people because white people were the only people who had access to the institutions and the resources to make inventing things possible, right? And so I think you you peel that back and you go, oh gosh, even in government patent offices, we see evidence that not all inventors were white. And then we do an even deeper look at that history and go, oh gosh, a lot of things that were patented by white people, there's historical evidence that they were invented by people of color. And then you go like, okay, well, but does it really matter? Like if we have a folding chair, does it matter if we know that it was invented by a white person or a black person? And I would say like, well, it does matter because if you have the unconscious belief that everything that matters was invented by a white person, then the unconscious, and you might not like this, but the unconscious belief that you probably have that goes with it is that only white people have good ideas and that the quality of life that we enjoy came to us through the brilliance and the hard work of white people. And then you peel that back a level underneath that. And you probably think like, obviously it was unjust and unfair and brutal and violent the way that black people were treated, but wasn't it also kind of a good thing because it made it so that the people who were capable of creating things and working hard had access to the limited resources that exist to get things patented and produced and whatever. So so you see how these like beliefs that on the surface can just be like, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that, you know, the folding chair was um, invented by a black man. I didn't know that the earliest computers at NASA were actually women who computed equations and that they were black women, right? Like we, we don't know that Ada Lovelace, is that her name? Jenkins was a black woman who invented what, like, binary code, like some really essential computer code. Like we don't know those things and not knowing them. The traffic light, the super soaker, like all these things, things. right? And when we don't, when we don't know that, then our unconscious bias that people who really are innovative and brilliant are white, that's not challenged because we don't know these examples of people of other ethnicities and races who created these foundational components to the lives that we enjoy now. And then it then secondarily translates to like, oh, when we meet someone of color who's a surgeon or a lawyer, then there's also this little whisper in the back of your mind that goes, oh, I bet that they're just there because of affirmative action, right? I mean, so I'm just saying like that it really matters or that we know the you're, truth. You're, you're sitting 
in a business meeting, a corporation, um, a business meeting for a church, um, a government meeting, and the black person that has an idea that might run counter to the majority, it's like, uh, black people really don't have right, good like, ideas. Right. It's good that you're here because we need to let, like, sort of charitably, we need to let you be here because you might learn something for us and you might be able to achieve something someday. But whereas if a white man at a meeting says, hey, maybe we should think about this in a totally different way, we go, wow, that's iconoclastic, but that's brilliant. brilliant. You're really leading us a different way. But if a black person has an idea that is counter to the status quo or general wisdom, we go like, oh, that's cute, but he really doesn't understand. So let's just keep, you know, and I just think it's a very deep subconscious bias. Right. And I think in the same biases exist when it comes to gender as well. Right. And the problem is, especially for people who hate those biases, like for people who say like, I do do believe that men and women are created equal. I do believe that all people of all ethnicities and races are created in the image of God. And so, you know, that when you are forced to consider the idea that you might have unconscious bias, because that bias is so immoral and abhorrent to you, you automatically get really defensive and are like, no, there's no way that I can have that bias because I think only terrible people have that bias and I can't be a terrible person. And therefore I need to like shut that down and not even consider it. And so then we end up operating in our biases even more sometimes than people who explicitly hold these hierarchical understandings of, um, you know, men being ontologically better or more intelligent or more capable than women or, or, or people who legitimately hold issues or hold white supremacist beliefs sometimes are more open to considering their biases than people who hate those ideologies. And so then are, are really threatened by the idea that they might be operating under them. And so just uncovering these real truths, these real complicated truths about the beauty and brutality of our history is really important because it disturbs our foundational assumptions about who who we are and who other people are. And I think when we are uncomfortable, we are then more ready to grow and change. Yeah, and I think for black people, what we often do not talk about is how those biases get on the inside of us right. and lower the ceiling internally. We, we lower the ceiling for what we might do and become. I remember, and I think I've shared this story before, when I was in high school, I mean, I was, I was a good student. I was a good student. And... I remember um, I was taking this, it happened to be an American history class, and um, like I'm leading the class, I'm, I'm, I'm just acing this class. I am the best student in this class, mm-hmm. I mean, and, and I know it. And um, I remember the final exam came, and I blanked out. I mean, I just, I had nothing. I wrote my name at the top and turned it in, and... Uh, my teacher, Mrs. Carter, a uh, white woman, came and got me out of the cafeteria, brought me into the hall. She had my test in her hand, and she's like, what is this? And I said, I don't know. I just don't remember anything. And um, and she just kept questioning me, like, you have been acing this class all year. What is going on? And And I remember leaning against the lockers in the hallway of my high school, and tears started coming down my face. And I started saying, I'm not supposed to do this well. I'm not supposed to do this well. And she said, who told you that? Yeah. Yeah. And so this, this, this um, denial of African-American history, have, and, I, and I, I know that, you know, there are some evil geniuses who know it has that kind of effect. And are glad it has that kind of effect. Yeah, I think it's really tough because it's hard to understand that we can be deeply influenced by ideas 
that we are categorically opposed to, right? Yes. That like consciously, even as a teenager, you were categorically opposed and rejected the idea that anything about your race and ethnicity limited you or made you less than, right? Like consciously, that was abhorrent to you. And yet still unconsciously, you're dealing with that. And and you can't just say, well, I don't believe in that and therefore it goes away. I mean, like that influence is there and you have to wrestle with it. And and it's not the same, but it is similar when you're talking about, you know, navigating gender and knowing that, you know, consciously I and most people categorically reject the idea that a, a person's gender limits or defines them. And yet still we have to navigate that um, cultural art, you know, that, that reality that still exists in our culture, whether we agree with it or not, we still have to navigate to it. And it's really um, just unsettling and, and hard to even process. Why do I feel limited by an idea that I don't even believe in, that I don't agree with? And yet still it has power over me because lies are powerful and truth is powerful. Yeah, And in our faith, we talk about the struggle against sin. You know, Mm -hmm. even the apostle Paul says, the good that I would do, I don't do. And the evil I try not to do, I, I end up doing. And there, there is this, um, war going on within as we struggle to, um, fight sin. And I see, uh, white supremacy and racism in the same light that there is this struggle both outside of me that's happening and inside Inside. of me. And it is, it is a long struggle. And I know, I believe, I trust, I stake my life on the truth that Christ has overcome in his death and resurrection. And the life that I now live, I live in the power of Christ's resurrection. And that life means this, the struggle of the scripture says we are changed from one degree of glory to another. So I am, I'm in this process of, as my mind is, as as I'm transformed by the renewing of my mind, um, I discover from time to time, oh, here's an area of life Mm -hmm. where I have consciously rejected an idea, but it has found its way in me Mm -hmm. subconsciously and it's time to deal with it. Well, and that's why I think two things, like it's really helpful, even though I think I remember encountering this idea for the first time and it was just so... I I just couldn't conceptualize that being in seminary and having a professor say to me, Hey, Kate, your whole life, you've been taught that sin is an action you take, right? So you do a sin or you don't do a sin. And obviously that's, that is true, (laughs) but there's also another aspect of sin that we don't understand, which is like sin is a web, right? Like there's just, we're all, we're all sort of stuck in it. And so as, as a, whatever, as a 21 year old, I was like, what, what are you even talking about? Like either I steal money or I don't steal money. Either I hit somebody in the face or I don't hit somebody in the face. Either I am a racist and I say racist things or I'm not, and I don't. And so to be able to understand that, like, no, sin is, you know, these powers and principalities, they are passing away. And yet there's still, you know, some, another um, acquaintance colleagues talks about like, you know, white supremacy is like a, it's like a storm and we're all in the storm. And some of us have umbrellas and some of us don't. And some of us are more sheltered from, but like, we're all navigating the storm. There's no way it's, it's just happening. And so we can, we can think about how we can strategically and thoughtfully protect ourselves from the rain, but none of us just gets to decide that it's not raining anymore. And I think, you know, that that's really important to understand that, you know, if Paul can say, I don't do the good that I want to do and the evil I don't want to do, I do. If Paul can say that and be honest about that, then it's, it's, insane to me that some of us feel like we can't 
ever acknowledge for a second that sin is a factor in our lives and that we need to be a community where people can say, I am struggling with sin. And that isn't a sign that I don't belong. That's a sign that I do belong in this place. And there's resources for me here. And you were going to say something. Well, I remember when I was first being confronted with the idea that I might be sexist. (laughs) My response was, but I'm a nice guy. Like, no, I'm really nice. I'm nice to everybody. Me? I'm sexist? And just to break through that sense of, you know, self-identity to the web that we are Mm -hmm. all caught in. Right. And I think, I mean, I know lots of people who are egalitarian and they're also just mean and unkind. Mm -hmm. And I know lots of people who are patriarchal complementarian who are incredibly kind to everyone. And that's a really beautiful part of who they are. And yet they still operate under the assumption that some people are, you know, made for some things and not for others and that they know and that God exists within this binary and operates into it. You know, so I think we've got to get out of this idea that like an ideology, holding an ideology makes you good or bad. I think holding ideologies makes you like right or wrong, (laughs) make you operate in truth or not in truth, but, but we're all somewhere on that spectrum. And so, um, well, and the other thing, the last thing I want to say, and I, I, I'll say this in lieu of, I'll, I'll talk about what I'm thinking about next time, but, um, I just think to come full circle back to talking about the cross being at the center of our faith. And we sort of, you know, you started out by saying like, people are saying, can't we just leave certain aspects of our history behind because it's just so painful and nothing good comes from confronting that. And it just creates division and makes us feel bad about ourselves. And how can we build a beloved community if we're just dealing with all of this junk? And I think, you know, and and you said, well, you know, the center of our faith is the cross. And so we should be people who can like look at the deep depravity and brokenness and violence and pain and just ugliness of, sin. Um, but I think, you know, part of the problem is that we actually at the center of our faith is a cross, but you know, we, we take the body of Jesus off of that cross. And instead of, I would argue that we actually don't look at the cross very often. What we give people is like a slogan, Jesus died for our sins. And then we go, okay, well now you understand it. Just like, now you don't have to look at that anymore. You don't have to think about that anymore. Like we're past all of that now. Let's just like, we're all pre-forgiven. We're all like, everything's fine now. And so I think that the deep damage of um, contemporary American Christianity is that we don't look at the cross and we don't know what we're seeing there. And so, you know, I think when... Christian communities have been healthier and have been able to allow the spirit to lead them to look soberly at what we see on the cross, which is humanity's ability, perennial ability being um, wounded by sin to oppose the righteousness and justice of God and to see that as a threat and to, and to see an act of justice to be to condemn an innocent person and to see that the way to end violence and to have power is to, is to do violence to others. And like to look at that and go like, no, that really is how ugly and awful and terrible the fruit of sin is, right? Like look at Jesus on the cross. That's that's how bad it is that humans had the will and the capacity literally to murder God and, and the goodness and to destroy it, to see the goodness of God as an, as a threat to be destroyed instead of a gift to be welcomed. And, and when we learn how to look at the cross and see that, like if we strip the body of Jesus off the cross and say like, okay, the cross is proof that we're reconciled to God, but we can't look at what has been reconciled, like a reconciliation that looks away from the destruction of Jesus is, is based on a lie. It's not real. Like the resurrection and reconciliation are only good news. We can only have hope in them if we see that what is being reconciled is actually the depth of human sin and depravity that like, we can't stand to look at that, but God doesn't look away, right? Like God didn't say, okay, I can stand being in relationship with you all as long as, 
you know, I never look at this ever again, as long as that's not real, as long as we pretend that that's not a part of how broken and how deep the fall has become. No, God doesn't have to look away. God says, I meet you right in the middle of the, of the worst that could ever be. And in that moment, and only in that moment, do we discover that God's love and God's goodness is triumphant, right? Like if the only way we can believe in the goodness of God is to hide from the truth, like Adam and Eve hiding in the garden, right? If the only thing is we can say like, well, God can love us if we pretend that that we're not as bad as we really are, that's that's not good news. It's based on a lie. So it's learning to look at the cross. Like we, I think the fear is like, oh, well, we'll never be able to live together as a beloved community, as a healthy and holy multi-ethnic and multicultural community. Like if we keep telling the truth about our history, we'll never be able to love each other. But the truth is if we can't tell the truth about our history, then we'll never be able to love each other, right? Because we will only be able to love like these, these masks and shallow versions of history that we're comfortable acknowledging. But it's only only when we can come to the table and say like, no, it really was that bad. And, and will we still choose to forgive and be reconciled and love one another? Like that's where our hope lies. If we have to bury the truth, then we've already lost because what we've said is that truth is more powerful than anything in our future. And that's why we have to lock it away and protect ourselves from it. And so I think, you know, that's the, you know, that's our hope is to be able to soberly look at the depth of human depravity together and then say, I see it. And I still choose to be community together. Um, that that's where our hope lies. But if it, but if we have to pretend that truth isn't truth, then, then our reconciliation is a lie. So. Yeah, that's good. And you know, the, the apostles could say, the writers of the, the New Testament could say, Jesus was crucified and put a period there because they were so close to people being crucified in that day. They knew how ugly, how brutal, mm-hmm. how violent it's, it was. And we're so far removed that I think you're right. We, we really don't spend much time looking at Jesus on the cross. Right. And to say that when Jesus says to the people crucifying, Father, forgive them, they know not what we do, then Jesus is saying people are more than their worst moral choices. And people are not eternally and divinely defined by their worst moral choices. And when we hide from our worst moral choices, what we are saying is, oh, no, I am no more than the worst thing I've ever done. And therefore, I have to pretend that nothing I've done or nothing my ancestors have done was really that bad because that's the only way that they can be worthy. But we of all people know that our worthiness comes from the righteousness of Christ. It's not anything that I have done. It has been given to me as a gift. And so my, my hope and my peace comes from the fact that no matter how the world sees me, Jesus has bestowed his robe of righteousness upon me. And therefore I can face the truth about myself. I don't have to lie because I know what I deserve and I know what I've been given. And I know ultimately Jesus doesn't just say, I'm going to come down. Jesus doesn't do what John the Baptist thinks he's going to do, which is to say, I'm here to rescue the worthy and the innocent and the rest of everyone can go be burned like chaff, right? Like that's our human version of righteousness. And Jesus doesn't do that. He says, John, you're righteous, but you're the least in the kingdom because you you don't want to redeem people. You want to punish them. And we are people who believe in redemption. And redemption requires knowing the truth about what we're being redeemed from. So what are we preaching this Sunday? Are we? I mean... We were talking so we, about this we, before. We talked about this earlier uh, today, and I was leaning toward a sermon on uh, commitment, um, what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, for the past few weeks, uh, we have been emphasizing um, grace, this free gift, and um, I want to balance that with, you know, yes, salvation is free, but there's a cost to following Jesus, and I think you came up with a brilliant title that I'm probably going to use on Sunday, and that is 
since Labor Day is coming up here in America, uh, the labor of following Jesus. Yeah, I do think I want to just cast a vision for what is a right and healthy and holy understanding of the work that God is calling us to, the work that we, if we are in Christ, then we want to be part of the work of the kingdom coming, right? It's not a it's not a have to, it's a get to. If you're in Christ, you love the righteousness of Christ and you want to be a part of that. And so casting a vision for saying like, do, do I have to do this to earn salvation? No. But if, if I want, if Jesus' ways are my ways, if I, if I want salvation in Jesus, then I know that salvation in Jesus includes not just an eternal party in the sky after I die, but transformation, reconciliation, and redemption here and now because the kingdom of God is in our midst. So there's, there's a work that we're called to that we joyfully put our hand to the plow and also balancing that of saying like our understanding of work has been really corrupted and warped by our hyper-capitalist scarcity commodity culture. And so to be able to say like we we, the yoke is easy and the burden is light, right? So there is work to do, but it's not work that is, is killing us. Like God isn't calling us to set ourselves on fire just to prove that we, we love him. And that's, I mean, to go full, full circle, that's what I'm thinking about a lot with, um, educators that I care deeply about and admire who are leaving or who have left the profession is to say, like, if, if work, the work that you're doing is killing you, um, then I don't think that that is the work that God is calling you to do, right? So there's just, it's not to say that the work that we're calling, called to isn't difficult in seasons, um, but but we, you know, we are called by God to a rhythm of rest and work and to a joyful peace that comes from knowing that ultimately what we're doing is yielding and participating in what God is doing, right? So the burden of it all is not on our shoulders. And I think we have a lot of systems in our country where we really, you know, ask and require people um, to, to set themselves on fire in order to just eke out a living or to try to save others. And, and those are, those are destructive systems. And I, and I'm not sure that Christians are called to be destroyed by them in the name of Jesus, right? So I think that there's just many ways that our educational system and other systems in this country are just are 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 destroying people. And I don't think that the Lord redeemed and saved us so that we we can choose our own destruction, right? And so I think sometimes walking away from a toxic system is the most faithful thing to do, even if the world is telling you, well, if you walk away from the system, then you're the only thing that gives anybody any hope. And everyone, you know, sometimes things need to break down um, before we can have the imagination and the capacity to, to create something new. So um, I just, I'm a lot on my heart, both for educators who are going back into classrooms and wanting to say, you are limited in what you can do. And some of the expectations that are placed on you are not reasonable. And also you're incredibly powerful. You're incredibly powerful in terms of the good that you can do and the seeds that are being planted in the lives of the people around you. And and both of those things can be true. And also um, that, that life is long and that, we as individuals are more important to God than institutions and God doesn't need our institutions in order to do the work of salvation. And so to step away, um, to rest and, um, experience the goodness of just being alive and embodied, that is also holy. And so, um, I, you know, that's what I want is just like gentleness and compassion for educators who are in the classroom and for educators who have stepped away from the classroom to say like, it is not your responsibility to be God 
or savior in the lives of any of these children or their families. And so sometimes there's just a piece in acknowledging like, this is all the strength I have. Um, this is all the power I have. Um, and I, and I can live in the system and say, it's okay if you think I'm limited. And I can also step away from these systems and say right now, this isn't for me. So, yeah. uh, so we're done. I don't know. Why are you making that gesture? What am I supposed to do? Oh, I'm supposed to see, it's been a long time. I'm out of the rhythm. Uh, so thanks for listening to us. Um, and if you want to find out more about what God is doing at God's church at Derrida, um, which has a new website, DeridaChurch.com. See, this Simple. one is easier. Yes. Um, so you can check out their website. You can check out the podcast with um, Yolando's messages, which is on the Podbean website. Um, and you can go to their YouTube channel. And if you want to know, or you can worship with them at 11 o'clock on Sundays. And if you want to know about what God is doing at God's Church, The Grove, you can check out our website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. Um, our YouTube channel, look for the green tree uh, and the, our uh, podcast on iTunes or, you know, wherever you get your podcast, the Grove podcast. The tree is wearing headphones and that, so that's nice. And uh, you can worship with us at 10 o'clock on Sundays. So thank you for listening and uh, we will be back next week.